as human beings, we all have a subconscious fear that limits our potential, limits our expression, and limits our development into the men, husbands, and dads that God created us to be. Today, I talk with the one and only Dr. Michael Gervais about our fear of other people's opinions. Welcome to the Dad the Man podcast. If you want more influence with your kids, connection with your wife, and purpose in your life, then you are in the right place. We share conversations with the world's greatest, as well as lessons from the Bible and my own personal experiences. I'm Brendan Wall, and I'm your host. I am married with four kids. I am not the guy with all the answers, but I am in search of them. I want to personally thank you for being here. It's an honor to have you. All right, fellas, welcome back to the show. I want to first thank you so much for being here. Thank you for tuning in and showing up with the intention of being a better man, husband, and dad today. So what we have today is a full-length guest interview with a legend. He is our first official recurring guest on the show. He is the one and only Dr. Mike Gervais. So Dr. Mike is a high-performance psychologist, author, and one of the world's leading experts on the relationship between the mind and human performance. Over the course of a 20-year career working with world-class performers and organizations, Dr. Gervais has developed a framework for the mental skills and practices that allow organizations, teams, and individuals to thrive in pressure-packed environments. His clients include NFL Super Bowl champions, world record holders, Olympians, MVPs from every major sport, internationally acclaimed music artists, and Fortune 50 CEOs. To put it simply, the dude is legit, truly world-class in his craft. And today, he's the guest on our show for the second time. And before we jump into the conversation today, I want to let you know that Dr. Mike's new book titled The First Rule of Mastery Stop Worrying About What Other People Think of You is now available. And I've got a link in the show notes to where you can pick up your copy today. You can also find it wherever books are sold. Now, I had the privilege of reading an advanced copy, and I got to say, it's it's really good. It's absolutely worth the read. You'll definitely have some takeaways from the book. We hit some of the highlights of it in the conversation today. But if you enjoy the conversation, you want to support Dr. Mike, that's the best way to do it. He's been so generous with his time and his intention coming on the show now for the second time. Go support him. Check out this book. You won't regret it. You'll learn a ton from it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with the Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. Mike, welcome back to the show, my friend. I, I, before I let you jump in, Huge congratulations to you. This is quite the honor that I that I have to to hand to you here. You are the first official recurring guest on the Dad the Man podcast. So we've been rolling for nice. years now. You have the title, you have the crown of being our first official recurring guest. Congratulations. Uh, Welcome back. That, uh, thank you for that. That feels awesome. And I'm happy to be here with you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I said, so excited to have you here. Our last conversation, it's been about a year or so, a little maybe a little bit over a year since we first caught up and uh you know i was just telling you before we hit the record button i felt like we had a bit of a crescendo towards the end of that i felt like we had some building momentum and i was really excited to get part two here on the book so thanks for making the time super excited to to chat with you um let's jog everybody's memory if you don't mind can you lay your dad stats on the table for us tell us a little bit about um how many kids you got? How long you've been married? Give us the the quick uh, elevator pitch on your family situation as it currently stands. Married 28 years and have one son at the age of 15, heading into his freshman year or in his freshman year in high school. And so, um, yeah, I've been with my wife for a really long time. We traveled a bunch. And um, at some point we looked at each other and like, life is going to be better if we have a child. And uh, I was not ready earlier than that. And I'm so thankful that that we made that decision. Yeah. Um, and a 15 year old freshman in high school. That's mm-hmm. that feels like the big leagues of parenting to me. My oldest is seven <laughs> and the problems we face, just the consequences have not escalated um, too high yet. What do you what are you guys facing right now? How are how are things? We are OK, so it's like the we've been watering these seeds of values and first principles and, you know, kind of the, the character of the the human we want 
to support. And now we're starting to see the fruits of some of that stuff in more consistent ways. And yeah. so what the, you know, the essence of it at this point, um, one, I just want to say, I think parenting keeps getting better. And so like when I was, when my son was three, I was like, oh, this is a great phase. Oh my God. And then he was like seven. I was like, oh, this is so good. Are you kidding me? It's this, this, and this. And now 15, you know, it, it's like, it's still getting better. And I wouldn't have known to say this 15 years ago, but when people think about or ask me what is success, a main theme in my my idea, my vision of success as a human is to have a rich and meaningful adult relationship with my son. And um, to do that in in a family unit with my wife and I, that we we're extending and opening and and understanding our role in his life as he changes, but to be able to have a meaningful relationship with my son um, at each marker of his life. So I can't wait when you know we're old one day, that all of us, you know, older one day. And so I'm just having a good time. And the real challenge at this point is helping him navigate. Um, so his EQ and social intelligence is really high, but try to figure out how to really apply himself to the things that he's enjoying most because he's a casual kid, you know, yeah. he just kind of rolls. And so <laughs> understanding strain to, to the best ability of a 15 year old. I mean, I'm, I'm not lost on what that means, but so that's, a th- those are some of the things we're focusing on now and keeping his hands out of his pants and washing his socks and, you know, you know, all the other stuff that comes along <laughs> with a 15 year old, very active young boy. Oh, that's, that's so good. I love the long-term vision that you've got of, um, you know, that ideal of success being having a successful, healthy adult relationship with your child. Like I think about that now with my kids and I sometimes, I think we all do as parents have the tendency to get sucked into the moment. You know, my kids are, you know, I've got four now. That's another quick update I'll give you. Since the last time oh, we talked, hey, I, had, I had two yeah. and we adopted twins since the last time you and I talked and oh, we adopted them as newborns. So that? like the house is full. It's crazy. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful chaos. You know, it's, it's nuts. Sometimes in the moment, congrats. I yeah, thank congrats. you. Thank you. Sometimes in those moments when it is, it's the beautiful chaos. I have a, you know, I can lose my temper, right? I can lose sight of what's the most important thing here. I love having that long-term vision that sometimes like the goal in the moment isn't to get the child to stop whatever they're doing. Sometimes there's a bigger lesson. And if you really want to teach them, you kind of have to I like being able to anchor the long-term vision into that can really change things. So I really appreciate that perspective. It's very much easier said than done when I think about oh, it. So much easier said than done. It, you know, like I, you can't, you can't, take back things easily you know so mm-hmm. we've got to we've got to watch that frustration tolerance and that you know the anger expression and and make sure that we're we're still like my my job when i think about i've spent my whole life working with best in the world whether it's in business or in sport and part of my responsibility with them um, is to help them increase specific skills and build the capabilities for those skills to rise and if frustration, let's say, let's just say frustration is, is a thing that we're working on. We want to raise the ceiling to when we get frustrated. And that's that with good psychological skills training, it's totally possible. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you. I didn't learn it in grade school or high school or college. Like I just spent 20 years studying <laughs> it uh, in formal education. And then uh, once I'm out in the wild, it's like all the stuff that works in laboratory does not necessarily hold up, you know, on the frontier and in the wild. So squaring some of those best practices for us to be our very best is um it's great you know that's those are these are the things i love talking about so i, I hope that you're figuring out how to raise that frustration level uh, yeah i'm working on it a lot you know it's just tactically speaking i i i, I think of in my for my own self it's it's i got to fill my own bucket first and and you hear that a lot and you think about that and I've, I've boiled it down to like, I need to be up a little bit earlier in the morning and it's not for the sake of discipline and self-promotion. It's for the sake of, I know I need to get some exercise in. I'm a Christian. I know I need to spend some time in my Bible. It, it grounds me, you know, it's a different thing. I think about the exercise being less about, um, you know, I'm going to get the six pack and the big muscles. Like, sure, that's cool. That can drive you. But I almost think about it as like, I'm like, 
I can be if I'm not mindful of it, like the pressure cooker. You think about like the Instapot that we cook our rice and chicken, whatever it is. There's that little valve with some of the steam. Just sometimes you got to turn that valve and you got to let some of the steam out while you're cooking my daily workout. But even if it's 20 minutes in the, in the morning, I found it, whether I know I need it or not, the rest of my day ends up being a whole lot better. My patience level is a whole lot better. The fuse is longer. So I think it's when I think about elevating that, you know, where is the line? Where do I get frustrated? How can I do it? That's what I found has worked for me. And uh, they're certainly not perfect with it, but I think about it a lot. That's great. Nice job. Yeah. And so filling, filling our own bucket is really important. And then having a set of best practices to recover from, you know, the high heat days that we're in and the high stress that, you know, many of us are attracted to because Mm -hmm. it's in those stressful environments that, you know, you figure out who, who you really are. And, um, and a lot of people don't want to be in that high stress as well. So they take a different route, but folks like you, and hopefully, you know, many of your community members, they feel that stress. There is a whole set of best practices to recover. And what we found in in the book is that one of the great constrictors, one of the great energy drainers for people is that obsessive worry about what, what, what might they be thinking of me, that that becomes this massive drain to the system. And I don't know if you've struggled with that in any way or, or, or not, but through our research, so many of us have this pervasive worry about what people might be thinking of us later, that it ends up becoming a massive drain, which in return lowers our threshold for um, frustration and tolerance because we're more tired. When we're more tired, we, you know, we're not usually consistent with our quote unquote best self. Yeah. I, so I remember here when I heard about that you were going to be writing this book, um, and I'll let you tell us about the book and I, and I, and we're going to dive into it, but I, it's, it's the idea of fear of other people's opinions, right? That's mm-hmm. kind of what we're talking about. Um, I'll use an example to illustrate how this has come to light in my own life recently. So my oldest is seven, he's in first grade and he's been in, we're, we're fortunate. We have great school options in our community. So he's been in a, a wonderful pu- public school, um, great teacher. We knew both his kindergarten teacher, first grade teacher, knew them well. Uh, great individuals, great other individuals around the school. He was having a tough time. My son was having a tough time. He struggles with like sensory processing. So um, I think about where his his line is for feeling frustration. It's typically uh, met very easily. It's a a fairly low bar. So we work with him a lot on that. Uh, but he was struggling in school, the loud noises, the lunchroom, the chaos in in the hallways. And it was, it was just a tough environment for him, the long day. So we made a decision, my wife and I, we moved him to a small private school. So he goes from 25 people in a class to, you know, eight people in a class. And it's a very different, it's a shorter day, half the, half the time. Um, but it was, it was a long back and forth and a tough decision for my wife and I to pull him away from something that he knew to something that he didn't. And mm. I remember in making that decision, we had to get very clear on why do we want to do this and what's holding us back from doing it. And I'm a very analytical person. So I wrote it all down on paper. And what was very interesting and illuminating was that a lot of the reasons for not doing it, the hesitations were, what are my parents going to think? What are the in-laws going to think? What are our friends at the school where he is currently going to think? Are they going to think we're pulling him out and they're going to like, you know, this projection of like, oh, they're going to think that we think we're better than, you know, where they are. And like this, we did the whole thing, but it didn't become illuminated until I wrote it down. But I realized it was that fear of other people's opinion um, oh, that just, oh. it completely anchored us. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so tell us about it's... like, where did this idea come from for you and your life? Like, where did that stem from to write the book, the first rule of mastery? Um, and I know it's around this idea of, uh, of fear of other people's opinions. Like, where did that come from for you? Yeah. Well, let's, let's just kind of answer the riddle here. The first rule of mastery is to work from the inside out is to make a fundamental commitment to you know, invest in your psychology and to invest in how you work with your thoughts and emotions. That's the first rule. Okay. And then what ends up happening thereafter, quickly thereafter, is that you start to realize the things that are in your control and not in your control. And the best in the world do not try to control things that they can't control. It's like deleveraging yourself in a very stressful world. It's like, why would we do that? Let's put our efforts and attention on the things we can master. 
-hmm. and what other people think of you, you can't control that. It sounds so simple, but it is this priming that, I'm sorry, it is this uh, dictum that our brain is operating from because we've got this ancient brain that's millions of years old. And the coding hundreds of thousands of years ago was to say, listen, you got to figure out how to mobilize quickly against a saber tooth and a wildebeest. And you've also got to figure out how to stay safe in the pack. And so it was almost a near death sentence if somebody were to reject you from the tribe, if you had to go with your spouse and maybe a cousin and a couple kids, if you had to hunt and gather and forge and build a fire and you know have safety and security and defend off you know wildebeest on your own and maybe warring tribe you know members on your own like it's too much so we've had to figure out early or we had to i'm sorry let me say it more clearly our ancestors passed us this gift which is to be highly tuned to the slightest bit of rejection that's why when you know if you're in a boardroom and i don't know you're pitching an idea or you're you're at a, even a social event and you're sharing a story or something or, you know, what, and let me finish my thought. And 15 people are like, that's great. And the one person's like, I don't get it. That we hyper-focus, we, we try to belittle or we try to over-rotate to understand and we're fixated on the slightest of judgment. This is why public speaking is so hard for people is because there's no wildebeest or saber tooth there's no usually no assassin that's in the in the audience like the the most dangerous thing is that they might look at you sideways and squint and whisper to somebody next to them like i don't i don't get what your face talking about like this is stupid so we've got this primal you know uh calling to fit in because belonging is safety now when this becomes obsessive when it becomes chronic it becomes a problem to living one's authentic potential to being one's very best and writing this book for me was part of an effort to pull psychology out of the shadows you know we got a bad rap in psychology that it's a study of dysfunction and disorder but performance psychology and sports psychology is really about the study of excellence and you know it this idea of for me of like living in the shadows, thinking I was kind of alone with this faux po idea, this fear of people's opinions and, you know, wrestling with the judgment and critique of others. I just thought I was alone. I thought there was something that lived mostly in me and not other people. And you square that with my life purpose really is to help unlock people's potential as a 20 plus years as a performance psychologist. Like, I think one of the greatest obstacles to unlocking potential is it's not their fear of failure. It's not the fear of injury. That's not it. Those, those can happen of course, but what it's more cunning than that. It's the fear of not being good enough. It's the fear literally of social judgment critique. It's the fear of people's opinions. So I just want to illuminate the, the whole psychology that happens here that lives just beneath the surface so that hopefully people can recognize how they're thinking and behaving in response to the perceived judgment of other people and to share a whole sort of whole host of best practices and skills, hopefully that can help them be just a little bit more free, a little bit more self-assured, a little bit more attuned to a task at hand rather than, you know, chronically trying to manage safety and approval um, and being okay with rejection as long as it is, that person is working from first principles in their life that they know are grounded and important to them. And I would add that are also kind in the world around us. So, but that's not up for me to really discern. That's up for each person. So I, I that that's why. And I mean, why the book now? It's because some level we've all turned into social figures. Like, I don't know, when I was a kid, you know, 40 years ago, I I knew, I don't know, 30 people, you know, and that was kind of my social circle. And, and with the advent of social media, like all of us have so many more people that are in our spheres. We're able to unfortunately be saturated by the highlight reels of others. And at the same time, if we're not careful, we get into this social 
media management of identity and it's dangerous period and so there's a convergence of our ancient brain we've got modern challenges we've got the fuel of social media on top of it and you know the whole thing is lit up with this obsession certainly in the west this obsession with a performance obsessed culture and so we are so tuned to quote unquote high performance and it's seeped into work and school and youth sports and of course social media that it's having this exponential impact on the quality of our lives and that's one of the reasons the soup that i just described is one of the reasons that people are exhausted you know there's a human energy crisis right now people are tired they're fatigued they're overwhelmed uh, they're stressed out they're not sure how they can do more let alone be more and um you know we're seeing our united states fray and um we're seeing family structures fray we're seeing the health of people fray anxiety depression addiction suicidality are all on the rise and it's not fair to point to one thing but it is fair to say it's as if the tide left it went out and we realized so many of us were swimming naked for so long meaning that we didn't have the psychological skills to deal with the the ebb and flow of the tide of the stressors of day we've just been masking it and the last five years have taught us no now is the time invest in your psychology what else is there it's your relationship with yourself what really what else is there and once you have a healthy relationship with yourself you can have a healthy relationship with others a healthy relationship with mother earth a healthy relationship with machines at some point and to have a healthy relationship with yourself rests on your first principles of life for you as you've mentioned earlier that's a spiritual framework for others it's not but there is some sort of philosophical grounding that is required to have a healthy relationship with yourself and others mother nature and machines um man there's a lot of different ways we can go here and i'm very excited about it the first thing i want to point out was um what i was really struck by you know when i think about the example i was giving you before and i think about this concept of uh and it's only illuminated further and further since that instance but thinking about how truly subconscious this was um you know in my head i think if you'd asked me before that illustration that i explained before hey do you care about other people's opinions my answer would have been no not really not like i care i know i would consciously tell you i care about what my wife thinks and i care about what my kids think and and a few others in, in my close circle but i don't know that i would have consciously said i'm really worried about what these other people think but when i really just let my mind go and i really just started writing and and just hey let's open up the stream of conscious what's what's underneath there it's been illuminating to me not just that an example but it's it's like it's become top of mind. And I'm thinking about that as the input as I'm making decisions in my day-to-day -day life. How much of this is actually coming from me versus coming from the outside? And it's shocking what that unknown influence has really been in my life. It's, it is crazy. Our fear of people's opinions it is a hidden epidemic. And it may be the single greatest constrictor of human potential. Our, our, our concern with what other people think about us has become an irrational, unproductive and unhealthy obsession in the modern world. And it's negative effects reach into all aspects of our lives. You know, we scamper around the world trying to please others and, you know, being looked at favorably. And we want people to think about us a certain way rather than to com fundamentally commit to who we are. And if we're unaware of how that's impacting, you know, our, our, our way that we're engaging with ourselves and others, our self-worth is impacted, our ability to perform to up our limits, the, the ability to live the good life, I would say, is highly compromised. And it, it, it's David Foster Wallace, a poet and writer, has this great insight. And he says, he's got this story of two young fish that are swimming along, and they, they happen to meet an older fish that's passing the other way. And the older fish nods to them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish, they swim all along for a bit, not saying anything. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and says, what the hell is water? 
So the older fish's question about how's the water is meant to make the young fish think about their own reality and the things that are so ingrained in their experience that they fail to recognize them. And I think that that's how FOPO shows up. I think that that's how it works for so many of us. As soon, It's like the sixth sense, the movie, you know, goes through everywhere. And as soon as, as soon as you shine the light on that concept, it's like, oh, you know, FOPO is everywhere. It literally is the water that we swim in. It's the air we breathe. It's how we relate to other people at a fundamental level. And um, again, it's not that we don't want to worry. I'm sorry. It's not that we don't want to care about what people think. It's the excessive worry. Yeah. And it's the people that we do care about to be very precise about the criteria for you to invest in caring about what they think. That is a very important aspect of this formula. Yeah. So that was the next question I wanted to ask you. How do we draw that line? How do we find that line maybe in our own lives, in our own circles, that line between caring and worrying, or maybe it's, I'm sure respect is interwoven into that, but how do you approach that? Well, for me, I've got some criteria and um, one, I, I just, I think the big lift here is just to recognize that this is a thing and it's part of the water that we're swimming. And I think that that's an important lift here. And if you can't quite recognize that, and maybe you are actually free from it, which would be awesome. Like keep teaching, keep, keep showing up in the world with that spirit of brightness. Cornell professor Thomas Golovich had this amazing research, if I could share with you. Um, and this, I think this answers your, or adds to your question here. And this was back in 2000. Um, but what he wanted to do is see if other people are really observing and judging us, you know, at the perceived every turn, <laughs> you know, in our lives. So he had a hundred kids and uh, kind of put them in a room. And then he had nine college students that would enter the room of their peers uh, individually and, you know, alone wearing a t-shirt of a photo of the pop singer, Barry Manilow. Okay. So they wore this quote unquote, very ugly shirt. And they asked these kids that were going to walk into this room with their hundred of their peers. And they said, do you think anyone's going to notice? And they're like, oh my God, I got to wear this. I'm, really? I got to, I got to wear this shirt in there. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's see how it goes. So they walked in, sat down for a little bit, did their thing. And then that individual left and they asked that individual afterwards, how many people do you think recognized your shirt? And they said 50% on average, 50% is what came back. And when they asked the people in the room, the hundred people that were in the room, what percentage of you noticed, you know, the person that walked in with the Barry Manilow shirt, only 25%, 25% noticed. And so it sets up this idea that we are obsessed with what people think of us, but we're actually not in the spotlight. We're actually not that important to other people. And so this was dubbed the spotlight effect. And it really describes how we overestimate the extent to which, you know, our actions and appearance are noted by others. And so, so one, don't take ourselves so seriously. People are not actually paying attention according to research and according to grandma, <laughs> like grandma yeah. said that to me all the time, you know, and then the next down, when you niche down, like who, whose opinions matter to me? For me, they have had to made a commitment to understand me. They, I somehow know that they're in it to help me out. And this is my wife for certain. And there's a handful of other folks as well. Like they're in it for my benefit. And I'm in it for theirs too. So that's kind of the first criteria. They, they know me and they're in it with me. So that means I'm excluding, you know, pot shots from a distance. Like even if they're brilliant ideas, you, you, you're saying that in absence and a lack of context of my unique struggles in life. So it might be a brilliant idea for you and 1 billion people, but because I've had these traumas and these experiences and these mishaps and these pain points, that shit ain't going to work for me. So I've got to, I've got to tune to the people who I respect enough that they are in my life because they want to help. Okay. So that's the first criteria. The second criteria, they must have been in the amphitheater of risk. They need to know what it feels like to actually have cold air on their skin. And if you don't have both of those, I'm not interested. 
I, it's too noisy. I don't know how to filter properly. But if I know you've made a commitment to love me, to support me and challenge me, to see my very best and hold that standard, you know, in this kind, loving, assertive way, and you've been in it, you know what it's like to be in that in this in the center stage. I'm all about it. So for me, those are the criteria. And again, I'll just reverse order. Not that many people are caring. Okay. So what am I worrying about? And then the next level up is like, I, I, at some point, I just got to be done with it. Like, I personally was exhausted by it, of this worry. I noticed it in the coaches and the athletes that I worked with that like not being good enough, that they're worried about it too. So um, there's a better way. And hopefully that's what I'm able to try to wrestle down with my co-author on the book, uh, Kevin Lake, um, you know, how this actually works. I love it. The, uh, at the end of the book, you kind of put the the frame and to me, it's, I see it as like the kick in the pants and it's the inspiration to really get after it by doing some of the work and, and figuring out where you stand and, and becoming <laughs> aware of it. And it's the litmus test. And I'm going to read the quote that you put in here from Marcus Aurelius to kick this off. Cause I think it's so good. Let each thing you would do say, or intend be like that of a dying person. So I think about you're suggesting we should frame our life through death. Why is that so important? Well, life is fragile and we walk around. Um, first, we walk around masquerading like we're individual contributors to the whole. Like we are connected and we are like more like a coral reef than a bunch of nails that are kind of banged into a board. Like it's a, that's kind of the first thing. We're all connected to this thing. And it's fragile. If you don't take care of the coral reef, it dies, as we're seeing right now. So if you don't take care of your relationship with the most fragile thing we have, which is time, and we just make this assumption that I'll see you later, you don't, I don't know if I'm going to see you later. So I don't know if I'll ever get to see you again. And not until you lose somebody in your life where you feel as though they're just you didn't give enough. You didn't pour into it enough. And you really understand the pain that I'm working from here is that life is fragile, period. And if we don't invest in living aligned with how fragile it is, we end up taking it so casually. We end up taking it like, it, you know, like, I'll, we'll have another chance at this. We don't know. I don't know when I left the house if I'll see my son or my wife again. I have no idea. And so I've got this meaningful, and as I share it now, it might seem weird to you, but I've got this practice. When I say, when you and I say goodbye later uh, at the end of this conversation, I, I have a little thing that's happening for me is when I say goodbye, I really mean it because I don't know if I'll see you again. And because I don't know, I back into like, come on, Mike, show up, be here in your very best way and pour in to this conversation with the right authenticity, intensity and heat and curiosity and like, be your best. And, and because I want to show up for you and support you. And I don't know if I'm going to get to see you again. You know, like we've done this twice now. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> we got a second go at it. But that's a daily practice with everyone in my life. You know, um, so I think that that holding the fragility of life is a, a meaningful, deep practice. And I don't know, when we get up in our own head, and we're frustrated about our own life circumstances, we're not there in the right way for other people. And I'm not saying we don't need to be frustrated or whatever. I'm not saying that. But this whole game is really about relationships with self and others, a love affair with experience. And if we don't honor how fragile experience it is, we just kind of callously take it for example, for, for, um, for granted. And I think that that's far greater than actually dying itself. It's kind of missing uh, the richness of life. It's like that rubber rubber band snap of when you think about things through that lens. It's like priorities pretty quickly fall into line, or at least what they do, do mean, for me. What, what do you mean the rubber band snap? Just like I just know I can make a pop, and it's just like I know that if I'm sitting in my home and my wife's right here, my kids are over here, and doesn't matter what happened at work, doesn't matter that the lawn didn't get done, didn't matter that there's a mess downstairs, that the laundry's undone, whatever it is. Like I know that if if my wife is sitting here with me and my kids are right here and they're they're here, period, 
and we can have that experience and we can have a moment and I can tuck them into bed. A lot of the other stuff, I'm able to just let it go. I'm able to flush it. Like I'm able to, to your point, be present in that moment. Yeah, It's tricky because we do need to cut the lawn. We do need to take the trash out. We do need to make sure, you know, we're prepared properly for work. We, you know, there's like those things need to get done. So, and there's looming deadlines and there's intense deadlines. And I, I wish that every moment that I was so Zen, you know, even when I've got something that, that needs to get done in the next 45 minutes. And my son is like, can you tuck me in? I'm like, I, I can't, you know, I just want to do it. I've got something else I need to do right now. I love you. And, you know, I, I need you to know that. And I got to go do this thing. So I, 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 I hear, I hear how you're saying it. And I, I find that I find it really hard myself to do it. And as long as I can keep communicating, I love you. And, you know, it's yep. like, <laughs> I see you. And, you know, and, and at some point my son throws up his hands and goes, yeah, dad, I know what you're going to say. You know, it's like, but I mean it. I, I, I mean it. Goes, yeah, dad. Mm-hmm. Like, damn it. <laughs> it's so, the hardest line in the world to walk. It's so, yeah, it's, this thing is not clinical by any means. <laughs> no, so, my goodness. I was walking yeah. out the door this morning and my son, you know, I, I, you know, I have a job. I have to go to work, right? I can't, I can't be late. I need to be there. And he's, you know, Hey, can we do a Pokemon battle before you go? And you know, I, we had already done a couple earlier, but you know, I'm like, buddy, I love you. And I have to go. And it's those (laughs) moments that as a dad, they, it's tough. It is tough. It's about, that's probably, that's, I don't want to say it's the thing I struggle with the most, but it's something I think about a lot. It's those moments. I'm like, you just, I, I guess the way that I think about it is when I am going to have those moments where I can have the Pokemon battle or do, you know, when they do call on me and I can lean into them and I do say, yes, it's being able to then let go of everything else. I'll tell you one of the greatest things my son and I did, sorry to stay on the dad thing here. I know it's a central theme to what we're doing, but um, this was somebody just kind of casually mentioned it to me. It was a, it was one of their family traditions and I fully swallowed it. And so at every promotion year for my son, so this is a promotion from kindergarten to first grade. Is that right? Yeah. From hold on, boy. Let me let me try to get it right. It was from kindergarten to first. It was from third to fourth. I think there was a, a little promotion. Yeah, from sixth. Uh, no, yeah, from sixth. Oh my gosh, there's four promotions. <laughs> One of them is from like eighth grade to ninth grade. One of them yeah. is from kindergarten to first. Okay, so I'm, I'm blanking on the other two. Um, and so. Oh, oh, that's right. I'm sorry. And the last promotion is from a senior year into uh, college. Okay. So at every promotion, we go and do something. And it's a father-son trip. My wife is fully on board with it. On the first one, um, I picked. And on the second one, he picked where we go. So the first one was one day. Second one was three days. Uh, the third one is four days. And the last one is two weeks the last one he picks. Okay. So it's father, son, two weeks. And that one could be anywhere in the world, right? The first one I picked and it was a two day. So it was an overnighter. And um, the way that I framed the whole thing with him, it was so fun. And I said, um, I said, okay, it's my choice now. And he's like, okay, dad, where are we going? I said, I don't know. Cause what do you mean? I go, let's just jump on a train. Now I did all the legwork, you know, <laughs> right? So my six-year-old son and I are not stranded somewhere, right? I said, let's jump on a train. Let's find a place to get off. He goes, yeah. And I said, so here's a couple of choices. What do you think? And I knew he was going to pick the zoo in Santa Barbara. And um, and he goes, the zoo in Santa Barbara, let's go. So I had a hotel kind of already planned. I had a couple in case he didn't pick that one. And so this idea of spontaneity and just like, like that. And the, you know what the thing he remembers the most is that night in bed, we, t- we put on like, I don't know, some Pokemon movie or whatever it was. I can't remember. And we got the largest chocolate chip cookie that a human has ever seen. Right. And so like, and he's like, and he still talks about dad on the next one, are we going to get a chocolate chip cookie? Like, are we getting one of those? <laughs> yeah, let's go. So it's that I'm saying build in spontaneity and yeah. do it like with excitement is like, it just carries so much weight. I love the way that you, you set up adventure at the heart of the trip. Of course you mm-hmm. had some details, fine you know, planned out yeah. and everything. You, was, you were prepared, but in his, in his callous. mind, it's 
we're going off into the wilderness, me and dad. Here we go. <laughs> here we go. It's He's so buckled good. up and laced up and ready. Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Um, so now, you know, I'm thinking about my kids and I'm thinking about, you know, this idea of, of, of fear of other people's opinions. How can we approach this with our kids? So like, how do we bring this to them so that they are, I think about, you know, that those ages, maybe, maybe it's going into high school. I mean, we all remember those times where it's trying to keep up with the cool kids and it, there is, you know, you're, you're very much, it's, it's easy to get swept up into the current of, of that, that fear worrying about what everyone's thinking about you or if they are at all, but how do we help our kids? How do we arm them so that they are prepared to be self-assured and, and walk with their chest out in school? Okay. So the first is like, we have to tell them like, you are not the center of the universe. And so the way, you know, they don't quite know that. And then when we just pile on all the things that they're amazing, you know, like it does get complicated for them. We want them to feel good about themselves. I, I don't want to be unclear about this. We want them to feel good about their ability to strain and go for it and make mistakes and figure it out. And we want them to feel that they are capable of trying and recovering and trying and recovering. Um, so according to good research, of course, you're familiar with this. We don't talk about things that they can't control their looks, mm -hmm. their height, that, 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 like their intelligence. That's not, that's not in their control. It just creates a weirdness about them. So we talk about the things that they can volitionally manipulate and control, which is their effort, their attitude, you know, the way that they respond, all the virtues and values that we we hopefully want to build. So that's kind of the first tension is you matter, not because of what you do, but you matter because you breathe. And so we want to de-escalate their performance-based identity. The world's going to talk to them about performance. We want to talk to them about effort, about doing and applying yourself with particular values that your family holds to be important. And then they can, they can adjust those values as they get a little bit older. But that's where we want to kind of lean into. The second thing is to help them recognize, you don't have to use the word FOPO, it's cool if you do, but you don't have to use the word FOPO, but FOPO is like, you know, when you, you're checking your phone so that you appear like you're in demand or you've got something else that's pulling you from being here in an uncomfortable way. It's like laughing at a joke that was mildly offensive or flat out offensive, or you just don't think it's funny. That's FOPO. FOPO is pretending that you know a movie everyone's talking about because you don't want to look stupid. FOPO is, you know, um, avoiding, you know, a, a social event because you don't think that they'll think that you're cool enough. And for people like us, it's maybe like avoiding a, a, a high school reunion because you've got this little thing like, have I done enough? That So FOPO shows up in so many weird ways. And for kids, it's like for high schoolers, it's pretending to drink alcohol at a party so that you're not the odd one out. Instead of being like, no, what do I need a red cup for? I'm fucking waking up early in the morning, you know? Or no, listen, I appreciate you. You don't know my parents. I'm not going home drunk. Oh, what are you afraid? Yeah, no, listen, you live your life. I'm happy, let's have a good time, but you don't know my parents, forget about it. You know, it's like holding that weight in yourself. Um, it, you know, so it shows up in so many ways. and. I think that the greatest gift we can give our kids is to de-escalate the performance based and identity and to recognize when they are struggling with their appearance because they're awkward. Kids are high school age. It's an awkward stage. They barely know where their fingertips begin and end. And they're trying to fit in because our brain is saying that's important for survival. So they do need to figure out social attunement, but not be overwhelmed by it. And then the last thing I would suggest so let me be very clear, de-escalate performance-based identity, help them recognize, you know, that um, in one of the scenarios I showed up that like, this is normal, it happens and, and redirect them back to just being about themselves. And you're on their team, you've got their back. It's good to go kind of be you. And then um, the third piece here is to foster that ability to take risks so that when they, when they have a moment to play it safe, to belong, or to step out on the edge where, you know, the, the savage wolves pick, pick the lambs off, like the step out there, to that's the risk. Am I going to be laughed at? Am I going to be plucked off? Am I going to be rejected? Am I going to have to like figure out a new social group? And it, is what they think of me going to be an indictment of myself forever? 
to, to encourage them to get out there on the edge and to experience what that's like in safe environments first, and then a little bit more risky environment, and then a little bit maybe even more dangerous. And then like maybe at some point in their life, consequential environments where they're standing for something. I mean, look at the great, the greats. Pick one of the greats that didn't stand for something that almost cost their life. And we can go Mother Teresa. We can go all the way down to Mandela. We can, you know, like the greats knew what they stood for. They practiced it over time. And when the consequences were incredibly high, they had this whole body of workers standing for something that they believed in. And it was the next natural step for them to take. And I liken how they work to the way that extreme adventure-based athletes work. Like many of us are familiar with Alex Hanold, who climbed El Capitan, 3,000 feet of sheer rock with no ropes, no support, just his fingers and his toes and his head to navigate the, the slab of rock. And imagine just making, imagine making a mistake at 2,000 feet above ground, like catastrophic. But he was so committed to this vision that he held of something that was challenging and wonderful for him that he went for it. But we missed when he climbed up a tree at age three. We missed when he climbed the higher tree at age seven that nobody else was going to climb, maybe. We missed all the small little steps that were non-consequential at the time, but over time became part of his body work that he could trust in. Help your kids build a body of work of knowing what they stand for and having the courage to step into it more often. We need these people. We need them. And if they do it with a bit of kindness, no, wrapped in kindness. So I, I you know, thinking back to the 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 example uh, of Alex and old, you don't see we we see the three thousand foot climb. We don't see the three foot tree when he's three years old. Um, and that illustration of how can we get our kids to take that first step, no matter how small it may be. Um, what's your advice to a parent who's trying to help their their child maybe take that first step? Maybe they are a bit more of a risk of maybe that you know they're not out there and they don't have, um, they aren't firmly planted and rooted in, in the way that we're speaking about. How do we help a child, I guess, ha- reframe their own relationship with risk? How do we help them to do something that may be taking the small step? Oh, it's easy. You know, like, I mean, it, it actually is very, very easy. And one, yeah. you have to live it. Yeah. You have to live yeah. it yourself. And you have to talk about your mistakes and talk about the things at the dinner table or breakfast table that you tried that didn't work. So they don't just see you as the strong man that everything always works out, you know, and then here they are trying to figure it out and, oh God, it's not going according to plan. Maybe I lie about it. Like live it like that. That is the easiest answer, maybe the hardest to do, but the easiest answer. And then the second is what you shine light on gets amplified. So shine light through questions and conversations about going for it. So my son gets out of school and you know, I don't, I, I say, how's the day? Good. Doesn't go very far. You know? So I say, I say things, open-ended questions that are like, um, uh, what are the scary parts of today? Oh, I don't know, dad, you know, like, okay, well, what were they? And so it, it kind of, it's shining light on where the fears are, you know, did you have a moment for bravery today? I know it's not open-ended, but um, no, but at least he knows that I'm thinking about bravery, you know, um, did you, did you have a moment that you really had to go for it? Yes or no? Uh, no. Okay. So sometimes the yes or no questions are good because it just reinforces the value of the person asking the question. And if you want to get into conversation, then you ask the open-ended questions about the things that you want to foster and build. So that's it's not hard. It really is not hard. And if you want your son or daughter to be um, an aggressive savage, you know, you would have a different conversation. If you want to be loving and kind, you'd have a different conversation. So this shows up in a car ride home more than yeah. anything else in the dining, dining room table about the the values that you want to reinforce. Yep. And that's where I guess knowing what you stand for as an individual, as a, as a, as a dad, as a husband, that's where it comes into play. If we know what we stand mm-hmm. for. We can then help again, illuminate that for, for our kids and lead them. Um, Dr. Mike, I, I, again, I'm just so proud to have had the opportunity to host you twice on this platform, man. It's just, <laughs> I feel like every time, or, or, you know, both times now that we've caught up, I've walked away like, oh yeah, I've got, 
I have some ammo in my own of my own sleeve here to take take back with me and um be a better husband, be a better dad, be a better employee, be a better friend. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, there's there's always great takeaways from our conversations. And and I mean I, we're gonna we're gonna link up everything for the book. November 7th, I believe, is the day. Correct me if I'm wrong. We're gonna get it out there. And uh, you know, I, I know pre-sales going on right now. We're gonna get this out um in time to get that going. So I I, I want to leave you with with the open mic to uh to lead us out here. Um, but any last thoughts that you want to leave us with um in regards to to the book, um, where you want to send people to find it anything like that, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, I want to say thank you for um, asking questions that take me somewhere. And so, um, and then give me the space to, to play. So thank you. And um, yeah, it, it would be super meaningful. It's my first book and the pre-sales. Uh, so everything that's sold before November 7th is what sends signals that something is happening here in our community. So, I, I mean, it's hard for people to, to, to do that, but I just want to ask folks uh, if you're inspired by this idea that there's a different way of living relative to how you maybe are worrying about other people. Could be a great gift for yourself. Could be a great gift for somebody else. And so if you go to findingmastery.com slash book, there's packages that we have. So I'm not just saying, oh, please buy a book. There's packages of fun stuff that um, you pour into us, we pour back into you. And uh, so we're super stoked on it. And thank you for sharing your community with us to, to share the things we think about most. And so that's the best place. And the podcast is a fun place as well. And congratulations on what you're doing. And, you know, the Finding Mastery podcast has just been a great community for us as well. Yeah, I, I love your show. I, I'm a big fan. I'll just I'll just say <laughs> that you. as a fan tuning in oh, um, and for anybody yeah. listening. Um, that's that's an, I mean, talk about a show where I walk away with uh, with, with something to go back and use. Um, that's that's I, I always walk away from your episodes. Uh, I feel called to uh, to a higher version of myself every time I listen. So let's um, do I'll, it. That's give awesome. It a quick Thank plug, you. man. You're doing you're doing amazing work, and that is a great place to get plugged into what you're up to for everybody listening. So, Doctor Mike, thanks again. Really appreciate you. Uh, we're gonna send everybody to uh, to go check out this book, man. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Oh,